They're going to get through this, aren't they? Yeah. Come on, it's Ross and Rachel. They've got to. What if they don't? You think I need a new walk? <laughs> I just wanted to let you know about my study group. Oh, don't be a fuddy-duddy. I'll be your study buddy. I'm about to embark on one of the great challenges of my scientific career. This work right here is going to change history. I think this is going to be our greatest mission. I don't have time to study. I'll never get into I got big plans for you tonight. I got maps, I got charts. I'm gonna see you through this because my credibility is on the line. It's at this point that you'll want to start taking notes. Welcome to The Sitcom Study, the podcast where we contemplate the TV shows we grew up with and search for the truth and wisdom within the tropes and cliches. And Amy, Happy New Year. Happy New Year, babes. 2024. So I can only assume our topic is going to involve happiness and cheer and everybody getting along and lots of good vibes. What are we talking about? You're absolutely right. New year, new attitude, new look on life, and uh, new boyfriend, new girlfriend, because we're talking about breakups. Yeah, we have reached act four of our five-part journey all about the will-they-won't-they they romances. That's right. right. And our couples are navigating season three, which is dire for will-they-won't-they they rom-com characters or sitcom rom-com characters. Yeah. Uh, so just to very quickly recap, if you're joining us already in progress, we decided that the will-they-won't-they they romances, the great Sam's and Diane's and Ross's and Rachel's of our time could not be covered in a single podcast like our other sitcom tropes. So we undertook this grand experiment to take these four legendary sitcom romances and try to break them up into these five story beats, these five acts, and try to sort of sync them up the best we could and devote a podcast episode every 10th episode of our show to one of these story beats. So act one was meet cute. In some cases, they're meeting each other for the first time. In all cases, us, the audience, were meeting the players. We got to know our Rachels and our Pams and our Jims and our Sams. Act two, tension rising, right? That was the real will-they-won't-they they crucible of that simmering sexual tension and all the fighting, except we really like each other, but do we? And what's going to happen? And then act three was point of no return which basically means everybody makes out at the end of an episode and usually at the end of a season, right? right. Mm -hmm. All of our shows last time pretty much ended with a kiss and this sense of intrigue of what's going to happen next. Usually we're getting ready to put the show on a break and kind of pick up the pieces when the next season starts. So that's kind of where we're, we're coming in here for Act 4. And yes, I was being facetious when I talked about the good vibes because this is really going to be the Empire Strikes Back, the, uh, <laughs> the Harry Potter and the Goblet of Fire of our sitcom couples here. We're going to have a lot. I thought Prisoner of Azkaban was darker than Goblet of Fire. I think Cedric Diggory would disagree with you, Oh, yeah, fair enough, fair uh, enough. Yeah, I think these episodes were kind of tough to watch. And that's not to say anything about the quality, because as we've established in our in our past episodes, we pretty much love all these shows. And this is really high level sitcom stuff where we're taken in here. But 
Yeah, just we we've all had those those experiences, those ups and downs in relationships. I have one of my closest friends has been going through a divorce for the last year. Uh, you know, it's it's just an unavoidable aspect of life that's kind of a bummer. And yeah, I have to say, watching all of these episodes about people dealing with the ends of, of relationships or so they think and all of that strife and unhappiness was was really a bummer. I was worried you were about to say made me think deeply. And so, yeah. Amy, I think it's time to end I this. I decided to jump on that bandwagon. <laughs> So we are talking about, if you want to watch along with us, Season 3, Episode 21 and 22 of Cheers, I'll Be Seeing You, Parts 1 and 2. Friends, Season 3, Episodes 15 and 16, that's the one where Ross and Rachel take a break, and the one with the morning after. The Office, Season 3, Episode 8, The Merger. And finally, New Girl, Season 3, Episode 20, Mars Landing. Yeah, so let's dive right into Cheers. There's lots to talk about. Like I said, all of these shows ended with a big kiss, and this was no exception, right? And this was a real sort of like, we uh, embrace passionately and cut to credits, right? Well, that was where we left off last time. Right, yes, so they, fill us in. So the last time we saw our characters, Sam and Diane, they basically were like, if we're going to do this, we got to figure out how to do this. And, and that's where they left us. So in the intervening times, they've been dating. It's been almost two seasons of their ups and downs and the very same stale writing <laughs> mm -hmm. over and over and over again of just them being completely incompatible, but having this crazy sexual attraction that they just can't get past. And so it's, it's episode after episode after episode of Sam trying to drag Diane down to his sort of childlike level and her trying to drag drag him up into a, a you know, a, a well-respected kind of erudite man, and they just can't seem to find a way to meet in the middle. And after two seasons, they're exhausted. Yeah. And you can tell they're playing that for all it's worth in this episode. We start in the episode with Sam who has done uh, an interview with a magazine as one of Boston's most eligible bachelors. And he hasn't told Diane that he has the interview. And he comes in all happy and high from the, the interview and feeling good about himself. And he tells Diane. And then he confesses to everyone in the bar when she leaves the room that he just gets the secret pleasure of doing things that piss her off and then doing the next thing that he knows will piss her off because, God, it feels so good to just get a dig in and get a win in. And they're just so like keeping tally of who's won and who's lost and 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 they just can't seem to come together. So he's delighting in making her feel bad and yeah. That's where we begin. Yeah, he's riding a weird line where he does have that delight, but at the same time, uh, part of the the problem that's going to get him into hot water is he ends up lying to her about the specifics of how this interview played out. And this is a real unforced error, to put it in terms that a jock like Sam Malone could understand, right? This... <laughs> 
He comes home from having been interviewed for, like you said, the article about the 20 most eligible bachelors. And she takes issue, obviously, because she's like, you're not really a bachelor. I'm your girlfriend. Isn't a bachelor like somebody who's on the prowl? And what he says to her initially, in my opinion, should be his entire defense, which is, eh, it's just a gimmick. It's just an article. They want to sell newspapers. It's just more exciting that way. You know, I'm reminded of the great line in The Simpsons when Homer and his friends start the B-sharps and their record producer explains to them, uh, you can't tell anyone that you're married because women are going to want to have sex with you and we need them to think that they can. And And that is his whole argument. Yeah, Homer goes... Oh, well, if I explain it to Marge like that, I'm sure she'll understand. Right. And that's that's what Ted Danson is trying to explain to Shelley Long. It's like, look, this is all just a gimmick for the readers. It's not real. And I think he would have been fine if he stuck with that. But what he does is he tells her... Don't worry, I told this reporter all about you, and she just didn't put it in the article. Well, we don't even get to there yet, right? Because first of all, we are two years into the central conflict in their relationship being him wanting attention from other women and and being this philandering guy and trying to still play games with her. The same problem we've had all along before they got together remains the central issue in their relationship. And so him doing an interview where he is parading himself around as one of the 20 most eligible bachelors in all of Boston, for any reason at all, is not going to fly. There's no way. It doesn't matter if it's what's right. I mean, they don't have that level of trust in each other or that level of maturity in their communication for that to ever fly. And so he does what people do when they have relationships like that, which is tell a little white lie that won't, that, that'll just cover it all up and make it it okay. Right. It'll smooth it over. You know, I told her, I told the reporter. And then when the article comes out, which it hasn't yet, and it's not in there, you could just say, oh, she didn't put it in there. What a bummer. But Sam just can't let it go. He's got to tell her the truth so he can watch her get mad and knock her down a peg. Yeah. So Sam's in hot water and Carla has the suggestion to have a portrait painted of Diane. This is all uh, modeling after Bert and Sally, right? We get a little time capsule conversation there where she's explaining. Bert and Sally and Lonnie. Lonnie, the one from WKRP in Cincinnati, the uh, secretary who I was telling you about, like she used to date one of those famous guys, Tom Selleck or Bert Reynolds. I get them confused. This was their like tabloid fodder at this time. Yeah, which this is just a funny little overlap because we get Kelly Kapoor later in the office doing the same thing, talking about celebrities' personal lives as though this is the stuff that she's going through. Right. And so, yeah, Carla, I guess one of her quirks is that she's into the supermarket magazines or whatever. She knows all about Bert and Sally, right? This is, I assume, Bert Reynolds and Sally Fields? And Lonnie Anderson. Okay. So so that's what Bert did, right, is, is he had a portrait done. So, yeah, they all kind of get on board with this idea of like, all right, Sammy, this is how you'll get out of the doghouse this time. Have a portrait 
portrait painted of her. Well, so before we even get into that, the whole reason he's got to get out of the doghouse is because he couldn't let sleeping dogs lie. He had to go back to Diane. He had to tell her the truth. And they have this mature conversation for a moment about how they need to wipe the slate clean. Diane's like, it's been two years, Sam. This, you know, we just keep digging each other and and hurting each other. And it, and we just need to stop. We need to start fresh and, and, and trust each other because we don't trust each other. Sam's wandering around the bar talking about how he's miserable and everyone's like, oh, well, if you're miserable, you got to do something big to like make it better again. Some big romantic gesture, right? And she's like, we've just, we've had nothing but pettiness, suspicion, and dishonesty, and we need a reset. And so he says, okay. And then immediately is like, so in the vein of honesty, I didn't tell that reporter that I was actually in a relationship. And I'm glad I didn't tell that reporter I was actually in a relationship because I want every woman in Boston to want to sleep with me. So there. And I want to tell you that I want every woman in Boston to sleep with me because it makes you look sad. And that makes me happy. And Diane has to stand there and take that. She doesn't try to go down to his level. She says, okay, well, I appreciate your honesty. So he immediately undoes the mature thing they tried to do, which is wipe the slate clean, start trusting each other, stop being so petty. He comes right back with the pettiness. And then he says, oh, and another thing. You have to do what I say, woman. And gets all weird and like misogynistic, like, yeah, now I'm in charge. You're under my thumb. You better not run around and date any other guys or talk to any other guys. Like, out of nowhere. Yeah, he uses the word whipped in that conversation, which is a very sort of dated thing. I remember that word being thrown around all the time in those days. Yeah, there is a definite pattern with Sam that he has this angry side and you see it is it is to their credit very consistently drawn in all these episodes that we watch where he has that point it's the same thing you see in a scorsese movie before somebody like kills somebody in a fit of rage or something where he has the wherewithal to stop and take that beat and then he decides to act out of anger it's like he has that moment where he looks both options in the face of whether to back down or whether to double down on what he's been doing. And every time he is just mired in the anger of the moment. And we'll get to this later in the episode. Or in some other deep seated anger that was never really uncovered. But that's what Diane keeps trying to uncover. Right. Now, to be fair, the scene ends with Diane choking him with the telephone cord. So when you say she never stoops to his level, like there there are times where they devolve into that. Yes. She turns around and is like, all is fine. It's fine. I will take all of that. And then yeah, it's immediately, a little bit your, like exactly, yeah. immediately stoops to his level. You're right. I, <laughs> that is how she resolves that. And then she leaves. And that's when the conversation about 
getting a portrait artist. So yeah, it turns out that Sam's still on board with the idea of the portrait artist when the guy comes to the bar and we meet him and he is young Christopher Lloyd. Yes, and he is fantastic in this role. I, I'm telling you, he is doing some sort of like Doc Brown uh, character work because he is like the harbinger of doom. Like he is a soothsayer in this episode. Every single time he talks to Diane he's he's like telling her future yeah. in these very dire ways. Yeah, it reminded me a little bit of an Aaron Sorkin type character, like that device of having of having a person who's almost like a little clairvoyant. Yeah, um, I was thinking, oh, he's Doc Brown. He's gone into the future and knows what's going to happen and is coming back and telling her. Well, <laughs> but this guy isn't all weird and kooky. I mean, he no, is. But, but he's but, in a different way. Right. This guy is much more like, uh, like he's Doc Brown that gets laid. You know, he's right. like young, smooth Doc Brown. Uh, <laughs> That's true. So he shows up to the bar in, uh, hang on, let me get this right, his... Arapaho ceremonial war tunic, which he earned by letting them pierce his skin with peacock quills. That's right. right. So I thought it was turkey quills. Maybe okay, turkey quills. So he's this weird, you know. I guess at this time, wearing this Native American garb would just sort of symbolize like you're kind of a hippy dippy sort of earthy weirdo. Well, his whole thing was that he. Got, he is allowed to wear it because he was like living with and became right. part of a tribe for long enough that he went through this ceremony. So that's why, it, you know, he's he's saying that in the same way that episode where Diane walked back in uh, to the bar talking about this Indian film festival that yes. she had watched and the rest of the bar just didn't get it. She's talking about Bollywood. This guy is operating on a different plane than the rest of the people in the bar. And it's even a little like it's like Diane, but different from Diane because he's on that like, I'm an artist, I'm better than you, you are all plebes, and art is everything. Yeah, he's totally that 80s version of like worldly, weird, artistic, yes. you know, artsy fartsy weirdo. And Sam and Diane sort of flip on this whole issue, right? right. Because well, he so falls Diane's in love with Diane. Diane's not even back yet, right? Sam meets him, thinks he's a total jackass, throws him out of the bar. Like, he's like trying to give him pictures and be like, I want you to pay to picture my girlfriend. You know, I acted like a jerk. And so hopefully this will fix it. And da 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 Christopher Lloyd doesn't want anything to do with it. He thinks Sam's a complete idiot and he's ignoring him and he's insulting him. And Sam's like, you know what? You're a dick. Get out of my bar. And as he's walking out, Diane comes back in and she's like, I'm sorry I walked out in a huff, everyone. I'm back now. I wasn't trying to kill Sam with that telephone cord, you know, in the way that she always kind of comes in and says her piece. And Christopher Lloyd is gobsmacked. Yeah, he's he totally has found his muse. He's smitten with her right before that moment as he was leaving the first time. He says, you are all stuff to fill graves. That's what he says to the, the bar writ large. Right. That's but then, right. yeah, when when Diane comes in, he's totally dumbfounded. And so um, he he introduces himself. He says, I am Philip Semenko. I want to paint you. And I just had to say, Philip Semenko is a pretty good name for a fictitious artist, but it's got nothing on Arturo Kaladny, who was the, <laughs> the fake artist from Charles in Charge that I thought was just one of the best fictional names I ever heard. <laughs> 
So he looks at Diane and he's like, you have a sadness in you. You look like a strangled sparrow. And he's commenting on this melancholy and all of this just sorrow that we can see in her too. And we saw in Sam earlier in the episode that they're just making each other miserable. And no matter what they do, they just can't seem to come together to have a real conversation and get out of this plight. So he wants to paint her. She is all excited. She tells Sam. Sam's like, hell no, I threw this guy out. He never tells her that he hired him in the first place or wanted to hire Hmm. him in the first place to paint a portrait of her as a gift. That would have that would have changed so many things, but he never mentions it. He just immediately is like, you better not let him paint you. I'm the man, and what I say yeah. goes. He literally, he says, I have spoken. I know. After he, he lays down this ultimatum, you know, don't let him paint you or else. Or else. And so she, you know, Shelley Long is really sad, and she's just standing there, and Christopher Lloyd goes to leave, and she runs to him and is like, no, wait. Let's, you know, let's do this. And he's, he says, what about that malignant growth you call a boyfriend? Yeah. Which uh, is a perfect insult. Yeah. And she says, and, you know, just to be fair, even though the vast majority of this is kind of on Sam's shoulders, she makes a kind of dumb sitcom-y move here and says, well, once he sees how great the portrait is, he'll forgive everything. It'll all be fine. You know, it seems this is like little kid reasoning of, oh, once mom and dad see how good a job I do cutting my sister's hair, they won't mind at all, you know? Right. But again, this has been true in the pattern of their relationship. But yeah, she tells him essentially, don't worry about him, paint me anyway. And then he says one of the several little prophecies that you were talking about. He says, if you pose for me, it will drive a permanent wedge between you and that man. And he delivers it like this sort of Shakespearean soothsayer. And she's just kind of like, eh, don't worry about it. But we, the audience, sort of get this chill of like, oh, gee, he he sounds like he knows what he's talking about. Yeah, this episode, like these two episodes and the two friends episodes are so dark. They're like very dark for these very bright, uplifting shows. The last little button is Sam comes out from the office and is like, hey, where'd Diane go? Oh, well. Yeah, and so it continues into the second part of the episode. We get a weirdly Baroque previously on sequence with Coach narrating to these black and white videos and they're sort of scribbling onto the onto the pictures. They just doing it like a telestrator, like it was you were watching a baseball game and he's like outlining the 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 And he's making funny jokes like, I got the impression that they had way too much for one episode, but not quite enough for two episodes. And so (laughs) they did go on a little. (laughs) Yeah, they had to flesh it out with coach and his antics here. I mean that. But also what I did notice is that they didn't make any mention of Sam's role in the beginning of the the fight in the Mm. first place. They only mentioned Diane going behind Sam's back. And they said it just like that three times. Yeah, well. We pick up with Christopher Lloyd, the artist, at Diane's apartment, painting her, like basically finishing up uh, the deed. So he is sitting there and she's in this like Victorian gown. 
it's gorgeous and and he's about to finish and he just collapses and is like i can't possibly go any further i can't go on you you know we have to sleep together and she's like no that was never part of the deal like you know we're not doing that i have a boyfriend and he you know makes more disparaging remarks against sam in hilarious fashion and she says, you know, come on, you do this every session. So we know that some time has passed. Exactly. They also at the at the bar, they're mentioning that Diane's been late every day for the last two weeks. Yeah. So she's been posing every day for the last two weeks. So this has been going on. So Christopher Lloyd is saying to her all of the reasons because she has told him no, that they're not going to sleep together. And he's like, well, then this is going to be unfinished. I'm never going to finish because you're too happy now. Look at you. You're happy. Um, what, you know, what has changed? What is making you happy? And he describes all of the things that she looked like before and what he thought that they were due to. And then he starts bad-mouthing Sam again. And then she realizes all of the things that he's saying are true, and she has been feeling those ways. But having this little, you know, moment every day where she was able to engage with a man who thinks on her level had turned that around. Yeah. And so it's sort of a funny, uh, the, the way the scene ends is that he gets a little bit of that angst back in her, right? Mm-hmm. Just from her sort of talking about Sam, just kind of going like, yeah, I know he's a big lug and he doesn't know anything. And he's always saying stupid stuff and like just going through that mental process. But he's come so far. And, yeah. yeah. But, but yeah, just going through that mental process, like brings back that anguish. And then the funny sort of capper to the scene is, him going like okay okay i finally i i've got it back now i can continue with the painting and he does like one more stroke and he's like all right it's finished that's it yeah and so the painting is done and their their business is finished she does not sleep with him she sticks to her guns on that but as he's leaving he delivers another one of those prophecies and he says it's the last time you'll ever see him. Yeah, he'll to, never forgive you. This yeah. is if you give him this painting, if you show him this painting, he'll never forgive you. It'll be the last time you ever see him. So she, you know, kind of hears that, but is like, no, no, no. Immediately, sort of shakes it off. Is very excited. Goes into work. This is the day of the big picnic. So. Sam and Diane are kind of holding down the bar by themselves because all the patrons and all the rest of the employees are out at the picnic and playing softball. And so it's just the two of them in an empty bar. Yeah. Yeah. And she walks in with the big canvas, you know, it's like a big flat rectangle. And so the way she's holding it, you know, Sam's like, what is that? A giant pizza or something. Right. And she sort of explains what's been going on, right? That she's, she's about to show him this, this piece of art. She says, Sam, your knuckles are white and your jaw muscles are quivering. And he says, I get that way when I'm about to look at art. You know, he's trying (laughs) to keep his cool and say like, yeah, I'm not mad. Just let me see the art. And then they go back and forth because she doesn't want to show it to him until he calms down. And that is what launches into this big argument. He's like, you know, you're trying to control me. Just, you know, there's no reason that you should have done that. You know, I told you, you shouldn't, you would, you shouldn't do that. And she doesn't engage. She says, Sam, 
I'm exhausted. Yeah, she says this relationship has always been a contest of wills, which is a pretty rough way to describe it. Yeah, she says, I give up. I'm, I'm done. I'm done. And she goes to leave and... He just keeps peppering her with insults and they get more and more childish. And she stops at the door because she, you know, she's like, Sam, I'm serious. I I just don't want to fight anymore. Okay. And he's like, he won't have it. He's sticking his tongue out at her. He's putting his hands on his temples and waggling his fingers, you know, in the air. He's making silly childish faces. And he gets right up next to her as she's about to walk out of the bar. And he's like, and blows this like big raspberry kind of a thing. And she turns around and is like, oh, stop it. And he goes, ha, I gotcha. And then he goes back down the stairs and the fight like then starts so she's trying not to fight she's exhausted and he goads her into it with this childlike nonsense and then the fight like starts proper the fight like we knew sam and diane are always gonna have which is yelling and devolving into some sort of physical altercation yeah the slapping (laughs) like and the slapping to me is funny. And oh, it was hilarious. Me... It was so Three Stooges. Like, that's how it was set up. Yeah. And uh, Ted Danson plays it really perfectly, you know, because they're they're right in each other's face. And he says or does whatever he says or does to, to make her slap him. And then he just immediately, like, really, really quickly slaps her back in this way that... I don't know. It's like he's got, it's like that game we played at Chuck E. Cheese the other night where you had to hit the thing just right, not too strong, not too weak. Like he does it in such a way that we don't feel at all like he's some kind of woman beater or anything like that. No, not yet. <laughs> right. But yeah. it's still, it's, it's audible. And I don't know if yeah. that's the movie magic or whatever, but you get a sense of like, oh, he, he really did it. But it, it just comes across as very funny and you get you get that contempt between them without like turning on him. Exactly. So it's it's one of those where the slaps are like, you know, like she slaps him. He immediately slaps her and she goes, oh, yeah, oh, you hit me. And, and he's like, you hit me. And then she slaps him again and he immediately slaps her. And it's like slap, 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 slap. slap slap stop it and then they grab each other's noses like she grabs his nose and then he grabs her nose and they're pinching each other's noses and they're coming closer and closer to the ground because it hurts so bad and they're holding the other person and they're like you let go no you let go no you let go and diane's like this is how far we've devolved yeah yeah it's true and also it's an interesting i'm just thinking about this now it's an interesting comparison like we talk about the older sitcoms still having you know one foot in the world of vaudeville and theater and stuff like this fight and the way that it becomes physical with them so often is very heightened and theatrical and it is this sort of surreal thing where like if this happened in new girl in that single camera more down-to-earth thing it would be weird as hell we'd oh be God. watching it going like what the hell are they doing yeah well we'd be like nick why are you abusing her like yeah, if it was in that either situation that it would either come across as abusive or just like why are they acting like children but not in a way that's funny like There's something about this still sort of old-timey sitcom 
language and you know just just that whole sort of aesthetic that it it makes like emotional sense to us even if these people were to behave like this in real life it would not like it would just come across as insane yeah. but in this sitcom in 1980 whatever it it feels normal or it feels it it makes sense it works the other piece that makes it work is that they as actors and we've talked about this before with them are so good in their physicality they are so good at their body direction toward each other telling us everything we need to know that they aren't saying because the two of them as characters can never actually say real words they just they're childish they're petty it's all of the things that they're calling themselves and and it's true but their bodies are telling us none of it really matters because we love each other so or we want to be with each other or we're so attracted to each other like we can't stay away from each other we're like magnets gravitational forces you know pulling each other together and it changes in this, like this scene, that's when it changes. And after they break with the, the, the nose holding and Diane is like, I can't believe you hit me. And he's, and Sam's like, I didn't hit you hard. And she kind of cocks her head like hard enough. And he goes, not as hard as I wanted to. And it, like the audience gasps with how dark and dangerous he sounds in that moment. He, it's like you were saying, he goes right up to that line and then decides to speak in anger. But in this time, he didn't speak in anger. He spoke in truth. I didn't hit you as hard as I wanted to. And from that moment on, Diane is like, it's never going to work. It's never, I, I can't, no matter what I put into this relationship, I'm never going to be able to get past whatever that darkness, that brokenness is. And so she moves from that point on up to up the like three stairs by the door. And she is at, in a position of relative power because she's standing in the higher ground and Sam's facing her. Sam's like, that's it. If you walk out that door, that's it. That's it. Which she said a million times. And then she says to him, yeah, like that's it. If I I walk out this door, that's it. Yeah. Sam, you have like, if you want to stop me, this is your chance. And he waits and it's silent. And then he lets out this big sigh. And she turns around and leaves. Yeah, again, it is very similar to the moment that was in the earlier episode where she says, like, you know, I'm going to give you a chance right now to take a beat and think about this. And he does. And he goes, like, I am sorry that I didn't kick you out of here the first time or something, you know, and it's the same thing where, yeah, he really takes that moment. uh, But, you know, the way that Danson plays it and just, you know, like you're saying, the way the whole show characterizes it, you relate to those moments of anger where it's just like, ah, it's like a magnet that's pulling you. And it's like, you know, I shouldn't say it, but, but I'm going to do it. I'm going to say it, you know, or I'm going to hit this guy or, or whatever it is, you know. And again, it's a fundamental difference between him and our other characters that he does have that, that anger in him where it's not going to be a, 
I'm I'm just such a big dope and I'm not willing to change for my woman. It is more of like, no, you make me, you, you anger me. And like, I, I can't get past that. And yeah, she says you're crossing a dangerous line. Like she just keeps emphasizing the finality of it. And he keeps having that moment of, let me think about it. Nope, I really do want to break up. And uh, yeah, he does the same thing and doubles down. Yeah. And so she leaves and he goes to go after her and then turns around and heads back to the office. And then she comes halfway down the stairs and we just see her legs in that little window that's, you know, right there by the door where we they use effectively and cheers that entrance there. And then she turns around and goes back up the stairs and then he comes out from the office and opens the painting and sees this almost like scream, like the the um, the artist, the scream. Yeah, monk. Yeah surreal stripey background and the the kind of almost alien looking uh face with with the big mouth like doing a scream it's kind of that sort of look except for it's um just sort of like a sad stare and he takes a look at it and he's like wow and he really appreciates it in the moment. And so it's like all she ever wanted from him is to grow up a little, appreciate things, share any bit of that with her. And he absolutely refuses because he's got this anger and it's so much more fun to make her squirm for all sorts of reasons. He's angry. Yeah. And that's it. Yeah. And so it does, you know, leave us again on a cliffhanger, sort of cut to black And uh, yeah, I mean, look, we've been saying all this time that Sam and Diane, more so than any of our other couples, have at the heart of their relationship this tension that is the relationship. You know, this isn't, oh, I've been hung up on her since high school. This isn't we share a sense of humor like Jim and Pam. This is just like every time we're together, all this crazy stuff happens and we get so emotional and tempers rage and passions fly. And so we've been saying this from the start. And so, you know, from from our point of view anyway, it's been kind of a straight line to this moment. We skipped over all the parts, like you said, all those individual episodes of their lives where they had all of these, you know, all this strife. But yeah, you know, this this ended or it seems like it's going to end sort of in, in the way we've been predicting the whole time. Right. So she says as she's leaving, you know, this will be the last time you ever see me. Um, of course, it's a sitcom. So we know that's not true. And there's lots there. I think there's two more seasons or so that Diane is still in the show. So they absolutely see each other again. But this is it in terms of their relationship for the most part. This is a a definite won't they. (laughs) Yeah. So that's where we are. We're not at their very, very end, but we are at their very first end. And we will transition over to yet another couple that has strangely become also very toxic. Yeah. Moving on to Friends. Season 3, episodes 15 and 16, the one where Ross and Rachel take a break, and the one with the morning after. 
Yeah, so last time they finally got together for real after they watched the prom video. They were each other's lobsters. I guess the kiss in the coffee shop was like they were kind of getting together and then... The pro-con uh, list happened. Right. So already, you know, Ross and Rachel, I think it's safe to say there are most sort of will they, won't they, will they, won't they, will they back and forth over the years, especially in these early moments. I mean, we talked about how in that very first episode, it almost seemed like, oh, they're off and running. He's already said that he likes her and they've got this thing going. Yeah, he asked her out and then never followed up. Yeah. And, you know, in the interim, even at this relatively early point in the show, They've each already had several interloping lovers. You know, I know how you love that word. Uh, so, yeah, they're, they're just, there's always a lot going on with Ross and Rachel. Uh, so we're picking up with them. Before we even get to them, I just wanted to say this cold open with Phoebe is one of the most 1995 scenes ever. She comes running in. She needs to know where a certain country is because she's going to have a fun little B-plot where she's dating a foreign diplomat. So she's going, well, where is this country? Do you have an atlas? I need an atlas. And, you know, I wouldn't be surprised if young people these days don't even know what an atlas is. And Monica's like, oh, I don't have an atlas, but I'll tell you what I do have. So she runs in, she gets a globe, right? Just the whole idea of like scouring your apartment in order to find something that can tell you where a a country is. And then it ends with Chandler and Joey. The globe is a pencil sharpener. So it's like minuscule, by the way. Yeah, yeah. And it ends with with Joey and Chandler saying, uh, see you later, we're going down to the Xerox place. So it's just everything about this is like a foreign language to a modern audience. <laughs> did you not have a copy shop in uh, when you were in college? No, we totally did Kinko's. Yeah. But yeah, when oh, I was in college 20 years ago. We had, I think it was called like Gainesville Copy or some or Gator Copy or something like that. The copy machine is actually going to play into this a lot because right. uh there's a young woman who works there who has a very understanding attitude about being leered at by multiple male customers uh repeatedly all the time. Yeah, right? she thinks it's charming that they think she's kind of hot. Yeah, this actress is uh you know, it's your standard casting for your rival to the main girl, right? Darker hair, shorter hair. That's always how they go, right? This is straight out of Sleepless in Seattle. Every time you want to have, you want to keep the audience on the side of the one person, make sure she's up against somebody with shorter, darker hair. That's right. Love Actually. Yeah. But so uh, it's initially Joey and Chandler that are sort of smitten by this woman. And again, she's got a great attitude about it. She doesn't mind them coming in all the time. And it's like, oh, hey, her. it's you guys. You yeah. want to come to the, you know, the other guys playing a show tonight. You want to come hear his band play or something? Right. She invites them to this show. There's kind of a fun. She sort of sets up this weirdness between them by going, 
by basically implying, but not really, that she wants to do a threesome with them. Yeah, I would say not implying. She 100% says like, hey, you know, that sounds like fun. What about both of you? She's messing with them, but also not because she is very much into like open relationships and every, you know, live and let live is her motto. Yeah, she's kind of a free spirit. She invites them to this party or show or whatever. So uh, putting that aside for now, Rachel, since we last saw her, is no longer a waitress and is now Anne Hathaway in The Devil Wears Prada? Like yeah, she's a high-powered no, she's assistant high powered. or something? No, she, so yeah, she got a job in the fashion industry. So we are, so Ross and Rachel get together the last time we saw them, right? They decide we're going to do this prom video. Yay. A few episodes, that's the end of season two. A few episodes later, oh, sorry, lied. That's the middle of season two. Later on, kind of the beginning of season three, that's where we have the one where everybody's late. Every, you know, they're yep. trying, like, no, the one where nobody's ready. Could I be wearing any more clothes? That episode, where we first start to see the veneer of Ross and Rachel crack away because he is very controlling and he has to have things his way. And she. Holds her ground. She's like, no, you're not going to talk to me that way. She kind of puts her foot down. And then since that episode, she has met this man, Mark, I think at the coffee shop, and he works in fashion and they start talking about fashion. And he's like, do you need to come work at my company? You need to come work here. You're like, this is amazing. And Ross loses his friggin' mind because this guy is only offering her her a job so he can sleep with her. And it's Monica who has to go, and I mean, Rachel too, but Monica is like, Ross, just because he wants to sleep with her or he might be interested in her doesn't mean she's interested in him or that's going to happen. She is a human with a brain. And it doesn't touch Ross. He remains jealous and he just, his insecurity from episode one of this show is the downfall of their relationship every single time. His insecurity about this guy, Mark. And so now the episode that we're in this time, it's their anniversary. They've been dating for six months, a year. I don't know. They don't say. They just say it's their anniversary. And she has had this new job for a few weeks. And he has been nothing but a dick. We already have passed an episode where he is accusing Mark and tells her that she's got to quit the job and all this other stuff. He has not been supportive at all. He's been a total jerk. And now a crisis has happened at work. And there's been a a shipping problem and all of the bikinis that they had ordered for the summer line or whatever didn't show up. And she's got to stay late to fix it. She calls and leaves a message with Monica and is like, please have Ross call me. Ross immediately starts yelling at Monica, like, what do you mean? What do you mean? She can't possibly cancel on our anniversary. I never get to see her. She works all the time. I'm only happy when she's a barista, is what he's basically saying. And Monica is like, dude, all I know is she said call her. Like, don't put me in the middle of it. So Ross calls her and is laying on the guilt thick. Well, what do you mean you're not going to be able to come up? Well, is this because of Mark? Yeah. And uh, so what happens is 
he shows up at her work. Yeah, and- she tells him, I am not going to be able to take a break. I will be home late. We will celebrate then. I'm so sorry I'm going to miss dinner. Yeah, and so regardless of how the rest of this episode plays out and what our opinions are about all the other plot turns that this takes, Ross's behavior in this section is just insufferable. This this is my nightmare. Like, I am someone who is pretty serious about my work. I don't like being interrupted. I get, you know, stressed out when I'm under the gun. The idea of somebody physically showing up at your office with wine and candles and saying, oh, take a break. Why can't you take a break? And just not hearing you when you're telling them, I don't have time for this. Not to mention the fact that, like you said, this is their dating anniversary. I didn't even think about the fact that it doesn't necessarily track that they've even been dating for a year. But let's say they have. Sorry to be unromantic, but it's just not that big a deal. Just go out the next night. And yeah, the only reason why I think this plays at all or did in the 90s is because it had this sense of a role reversal. Like, oh, it's the guy who's all touchy-feely and wants to be more into the personal stuff. And it's the girl who's more career-oriented. And isn't that an interesting sort of twist on the stereotype? But... Watching it play out, it is just like unambiguous that he's just being such a baby. And yeah, it's hard to watch. You just want to be like, have him escorted from the premises by security. Oh, absolutely. This is love bombing to a T. He shows up with this picnic and wine and she's on the phone trying to sort this big thing out. And her partner, who she shares a desk with, she's like, oh, that's so sweet. Oh, you know, she's trying to like kind of make him feel better. And, you know, and she does kind of think it's nice that a guy would do that for you. But, you know, Rachel is like, please. And then he starts lighting candles and pouring wine and he lights flowers on fire that she's got some like, you know, dried old flowers sitting on her desk. He lights candle, puts it next to it, lights a fire. And Rachel is like, she, she says, can I call you back? Puts the phone down and she's like, you need to leave. You need to get all of this stuff and get out of here. Yeah. And uh, just to point out the subtrope, we're going to have a fire in New Girl. But yeah, he leaves. He goes home. She, you know, several hours later, I guess he goes to her place, not home. She, several hours later, comes through the door and they pick right back up with the argument. She's like, I'm, I'm giving you the opportunity to apologize to me because he has the energy of like, oh, I guess now that you're finally done with work, maybe you can make it up to me. And they're right back at it. Yeah, he, that's the first thing he says to her. She walks in. She's like, hey, he's sitting on the couch, sort of morosely, you know, eating couscous. And she puts her things down in her room and she turns around and he says that shit about like, oh, you know, now you can make it up to me. Like, what? Make what up to who? You need to make it up to her. And that's what she says to him. Like, no, this is your chance to apologize to me. And he's he blows up. Apologize for what? Who wouldn't want a boyfriend who does all these lovely things and shows up and wants to be with you? And ever since you started working, your work is more important than me. And how dare you? And she is just like baffled as any normal woman would be to say, 
How the hell can you not see that me being a barista was never my dream? I have a chance at a brand new job, by the way. I've been in this job like not even a month. And this is in the industry I want to work in. I'm I'm doing the thing that I always said I was going to do. And all you can do is make me feel bad. Like you're not being supportive at all of this amazing thing that I'm doing. It's all about you, you, you all the time. And, and you're being jealous and you're being insecure and you're being controlling and you're being mean. And he's just like, no, no, and doesn't have any comeback. Yeah. And I do want to say, you know, while we're ganging up on Ross, the character, I think Schwimmer, the actor, is still doing great. You know, he kind of lost his way in the later seasons and kind of drank the Jim Carrey Kool-Aid. But at this time, he's doing really well. And to me, it's a laugh out loud moment when, you know, they're in the middle of this argument. It's getting really nasty, like you said. And he goes, is this about Mark? And then she looks at him with this like, what the fuck? fuck are you talking about? And he immediately goes, oh, okay, it's not. And the way he plays that instantaneous, like, oh, shouldn't have said that, instant regret, sorry, is very funny. So, you know, the, just just to clarify, I think the actor is doing a great job. But yeah, this this situation is is getting more and more toxic. And then we get the moment similar to what we're going to get in New Girl, where when the idea of breaking up or taking a break, as it were, is first introduced, it, it like sends a chill down, down the spine and it kind of makes everybody sort of take a step back, right? Because Rachel says, hey, maybe we should take a break. Ross doesn't understand at first. He thinks she means like take a break from fighting and get some Chinese food. Yeah, uh, which would have been a good idea yeah. for both of them. Yeah. And then she says, no, I mean, like, take a break from our relationship. Well, she says, take a break from each other. Yeah. But you get it's a little more compressed. But Ross has a moment kind of like Sam, where he stops, thinks about it. You can kind of see there's a few different ways I can handle this. And he goes, fine, and just walks out of the set. I and like, I'm glad you saw all of that in there. All I saw was a child not being willing to say what he feels because she was like, she's at her wits end. He's not hearing her. She's, she's saying everything she can to just be like, I am a human person, not some idea. I am a human person, not some idea. Right. And he is not getting it. And she's like, maybe we should just take a break from each other. And instead of him looking inside, taking a moment, doing the things you said you thought you saw in his minuscule half a second that he didn't do, he just goes, fine, fine, and walks out. Okay. So that is how much you want to give to the relationship. That's what you decide. And he walks out and immediately goes to a bar where his friends are. She is sitting by the phone waiting for him. She's called him like eight times in the interim. She's just like, no, I shouldn't have said that. Come back. Let's talk more. She immediately is like, please, let's talk more. What the hell kind of a baby doesn't? talk or at least say i'm gonna take a break from this fight but we still need to talk more and leave what the hell ross so he goes to the bar where chandler and joey are we see 
the girl, the copy girl, Chloe, she's there. And she is so excited that the dinosaur guy is here because they know each other from the copy place because he, like many of our professors, uses that copy place all the time for his big sets of reading that he does for his class. And so he knows her and she loves dinosaurs and immediately is all excited that he's yeah. there. Yeah, and also he hasn't been leering at her at the copy shop the way Joey and Chandler have. Of course. But yeah, I just want to pause here because I feel like we're pretty unanimous that so far Ross has been, you know, insufferable baby. I feel like from here on in the story, for me, it gets a little murky. And, you are wrong. Well, well, we can debate it out. For for me, the frustration of how the second half of this plays out, it's not about I'm on Team Ross and I think he's right. To me, the frustration is this scenario is so perfectly constructed by the writers to create maximum misunderstanding and confusion and everything happens in just the right way to sort of create this scenario that pits them against each other like as much as could possibly happen. And there are so many elements of this that are like a little outside of their control or just sort of like the fates conspiring against them. And by fates, I mean the writer's room. And so, yeah, let's let's kind of break down all the different factors here because he goes, I don't necessarily agree that it's it's bad for him to go to the bar, him going to talk to Joey and Chandler and just sort of like, oh, I need to be with my friends and kind of, you know, talk it out. I think that's okay. And the way that that goes initially is is what we're all hoping for, right? It's Joey and Chandler going like, come on, buddy, it's you and Rachel, you'll get through it, right? Yeah. But one of several things that I think is again, sort of sort of contrived and makes this scenario so extreme is this copy shop girl comes and just totally throws herself at him. Oh, right? yeah. At exactly the same time as on Rachel's end, this Mark guy is like sort of inviting himself over and insisting that he come over to talk to her. So we can see this happening before our eyes in slow motion. Like everything's kind of uh, shaping up for for people to be sort of caught in the wrong place at the wrong time. Right. And like you said, for maximum miscommunication, 100%. The thing that I think is done right, because look, the writers are writing a breakup episode. So of course they're going to construct it in those things. We always say good relationships, they take a lot of work, but it also has a lot to do with timing and luck, right? And in this case, the timing and the luck are all on the side of a split. But what they do amazing with this is that Chandler and Joey and Monica and Phoebe are... They get to be us. Oh, yeah. In this episode. So we're moving now almost into episode two, the second part of this, right? And throughout this whole second half of this epic thing that's about to happen in the world of Ross and Rachel, we are Monica and Chandler and Phoebe and Joey. They, during the big conversation later on, are in the bedroom listening in and deciding when they, you know, are they going to come out? And they're talking to each other. At one point, they say, 
is this it? Is this the end? Like, and they're crying in the same way that like me and you are sitting on the couch, like tearing up, like, is this it? Is this it? (laughs) Yeah. Which I guess it makes sense because they've known Ross and Rachel for so long, but in the moment watching it now, when they're like, it's Ross and Rachel, how can this be? I'm kind of like, guys, they've been dating for a year. It's not that big a deal. No, but Ross has been obsessed with her forever. And when Rachel finally realized, yeah, like exactly. I mean, really, Really, I mean, Phoebe has already said he's her lobster. You know what I mean? Like yeah. it's a it's a thing, and and it's really fun to have that spoken out loud, like our thoughts, yes. the audience's thoughts, when we get to cut to those scenes of them uh, hiding in the bedroom later on. Yeah, but what really set this off was Mark came over, like we said, to just sort of hang out with Rachel. Right, he's not trying to sleep with her. Yeah. Ross- he is. Well, he's not he's not getting anywhere trying no, to sleep No, she him. is very clear with him whereas Ross again his insecurities undermine him at every turn right. because he is not able to be clear with the girl, the but Chloe that said, girl. Like if Yeah, I mean Ross calls Rachel. Again, we almost have our crisis aver- averted moment because he calls her from the payphone because it's the 90s and he hears Mark in the background. And, you know, in fairness, you know, it's good for, it's good for the goose, it's good for the gander. Rachel does lie in that casual way. She does do that. Oh, who is that in the background? Uh, nobody. That's nobody. You know, like she knows that it looks bad that mere hours after they had this fight, this Mark guy is in her apartment. And so that's what I mean when I say like, yeah, look, I'm not going to let Ross off the hook, but what a specific scenario that when he calls the exact guy that he's so insecure about is at her place in the middle of the night, like the whole thing just... So the whole contrivance for Mark being there in the first place, Rachel's sitting by the phone, she's eating the couscous, she's all sad, and um, the phone rings and she picks it up thinking, like very excited, thinking it's Ross, but but it's Mark. And then she's like, oh, and he's calling to say, thank you for staying late at work and fixing this problem. And that was really amazing. And the way you handled it was really great. Like it was, you know, kind of a performance review way to go kind of a thing. And she's like, oh, thank you. You know, and he's like, what's going on? Why do you sound upset? He absolutely is trying to worm his way in there, right? He's doing a gym kind of a thing that we always kind of fault Jim for with the Jim and Pam situation. And he is a hundred percent trying to take advantage of it and he muscles his way over he's like look you're exhausted I'm gonna bring Chinese food and she's like I'm not hungry and he's like well it's not for you it's for me and so he comes over and she tells him about what just happened and how they you know they sort of broke up but they need to talk more and she's waiting and she can't get a hold of him and he's not home and Mark's like you know what just forget about it whatever let's have some Chinese food And then Ross calls, she gets all excited, and Mark knows what he's doing when he talks in the background. Mm -hmm. He says, do you want some apple juice? He knows exactly what he's doing. That guy's also a dick. And yes, so that's the end of it. When Ross hears Mark in the background, which again, I'm not really team Ross in any of this, but that moment is sort of un 
undeniable, you know, when he's on the phone and he hears that voice. Not to say that what he does next makes sense, but I totally understand him coming to the conclusion of, oh, so that's how it is, and kind of hands hangs up the phone. And yeah, long story short, he sleeps with the copy girl. He sleeps with the copy girl. Um, Rachel immediately kicks Mark out. I think what they're trying to tee up here is that Rachel getting caught early on doesn't leave her open to the insecurity of potentially falling into a Mark trap, but it sets Ross up to dive headlong into his insecurities which have been so prevalent throughout this entire series so far. So he dives headlong into his insecurities, has sex with this girl, the copy girl, and wakes up the next morning to her still being there. And he goes and listens to his answering machine. And there's message after message from Rachel. One of them, the last one saying, I'm so sorry, you know, I didn't, like, Mark left immediately after you called. He only came over because of work stuff, and I I, I realized that I shouldn't have even said yes to that. I'm so sorry. Which she didn't, by the way. I know, but she's taking the, the blame for what she can, you know. She's yeah. being a reflective person and being like, I know that that was hurtful. I'm going to come over before work at 8.30 this morning, and let's talk kind of a thing. You know, I don't want to break up. I want to get I want to I want to get back together I want to talk about it and he is freaking out immediately because it's 829 and the girl is still here and Rachel's about to come over yeah and this is a great sitcom moment we've had so much heaviness and strife and heartbreak this and and it's still going on all that tension is still there but this is one of those things this is one of those scenes that kind of reminds you like oh yeah I am watching an iconic sitcom because just the way he he opens the door the front door and Rachel is standing there, right? Because like we said, this this copy girl is total free spirit. She's like, oh, you're getting back together with your girlfriend? Wonderful. Great. I'm, I'm all for it. You know, give me a kiss. And he's like, no, no more kissing. You got to get out of here. Opens the front door and Rachel is standing there. So he hides the girl with the door. You know, the door just closed on the opposing wall. And... It's so, it's such a funny moment when he and Rachel hug, they get back together, and then the copy girl gives him the thumbs up, sticks out the thumbs up from behind the the door. door. Yeah. And he like hugs Rachel even tighter. He's like, oh! Yeah. And so again, it's, you know, Ross is just totally in the middle of that sitcom. Yeah, what do I do? I got two girls, you know? And so... The next big scene is him sort of commiserating with Joey and Chandler, right? Rachel's off at work. And so he's talking it through with them. And they're telling him, because I think his instinct is, I need to tell Rachel. And they're saying, don't do that, right? And we agree with Joey and Chandler on that point, right? Do we? To me, it's a tough situation. But I feel like this is one of those cases where the knowledge is going to torment the possessor of the knowledge, you know? And so I think that's true. And I think, I think in the real world, I, I think I hundred percent would agree with Joey and Chandler, but because it's a TV show, you have to say something. Well, I mean, that gets into this whole debate that's going to rage on for the rest of the series. And basically, and basically for the rest of time, among anyone who's seen the series, 
they were on a break, right? Right, and- which to me is reductive, right? Because throughout both of these episodes, Rachel agrees that they were on a break. She agrees that that's what yes. it was. There is no discrepancy. It's only in the later like in the later episodes when they're referring back to this and, you know, Rachel's like, whatever, you know, you cheated on me or whatever. And he's like, we were on a break that it becomes reduced to that moment because what isn't ever mentioned and what really should be mentioned is him sleeping with the copy girl isn't the reason they broke up. His insecurity and his controlling nature and his jealousy and his lack of support for his girlfriend who is finally doing the career of her dreams, that's the reason they broke up. And he never changes. Well, I might debate you a little bit on that. So let's get to that. She finds out about this because this copy girl... The six degrees of Rachel Green. Exactly. There's there's a trail. He says he has to track down the trail, right? And it's... I forget what the first link in the chain is, but it Her goes... Her roommate... Or yeah, the copy guy that she works with and his sister works with Phoebe And um, they're worried that his sister will tell Phoebe if it gets to her. So you see Ross going through every single person trying to make sure they didn't tell. And then they've already told the one person. But then he gets to the one who works with Phoebe and she's like, no, I didn't tell Phoebe, but I did tell my roommate. And then the reveal, her roommate is Gunther, who has had a huge crush on Rachel since we first met him. And it's just like perfection that he gets to tell Rachel and which happens off camera. But what we do see is Ross being like, you didn't tell her, right? And he goes, oh, was I not supposed to tell Rachel? Yeah. So Gunther gets the last laugh in this situation. And so here's the thing. You say, well, the real cause for their breakup is all the insecurity and all of that antecedent bullshit, not the actual cheating. But Rachel's reaction is so extreme about the like, oh, I just keep picturing you with her, the flesh on flesh. Well, that's later on. I know, but it is like she places a huge importance on this specific carnal act, which look, I, I totally get it. And I don't want to dismiss that or make light of it. But what I will say, watching it now these characters just seem so young. And so from my point of view, as a middle-aged guy in the year 2023, watching this show about characters in their 20s that have been dating about a year and don't even live together, let alone aren't married, there is, again, I don't want to make light of it, but there is a point where I'm wondering, like, look, of course she's going to be super upset in the moment, but is the show actually making more of this infidelity or yes. this alleged infidelity than it should? And my impression watching it is, yeah, I think they should be focusing more on yeah. everything leading up to it. And this idea of, like, her reaction to him, his particular infraction of sleeping with the copy girl seemed almost like, dare I say, melodramatic relative to, to the scheme of things. So here's what I think. This is we're in the 90s. All of the things that that we're talking about that are the actual problems in their relationship are 100 percent steeped in misogyny and the ways that in straight relationships, 
white men get to do the absolute minimum and the women just have to take the blame and keep doing and keep doing and do the emotional lifting and all of the child lifting and all of the everything, right? That is what this breakup is. It is Rachel taking all the blame for pushing him away in the first place and being upset that he did a thing. And instead of the two of them, or instead of her being able to reiterate all of the things that he was doing wrong up to that point that made her say, I think we need to take a break, she's just focusing on the thing that he did after she said that because she's already blamed herself for everything before. So now all she has is this thing that he just did and the fight ish that they're having so they come back to her apartment and she is like i think you need to leave you know this this is over there's no coming back from this and ross says what he should have said the night before he says no i want to stay i want to talk about it yeah bitch that's what you should have said before when you walked out and said fine and decided to be a big baby right But so now he knows he did something wrong, so he's trying to stay in it. But he can't admit that he did anything wrong. He says he's sorry and that he didn't mean anything, but it was still okay. And you have to be able to get over it, Rachel, because we weren't actually dating. And she's like, no, you are not going to get out of the emotional responsibility for the pain that you have caused this us on a technicality and she gives him all night they sit and they talk and they talk and they talk ad nauseum and we get to see the you know the rest of the cast like oh my god i haven't eaten oh my god it's nine o'clock oh my god it's 3 a.m oh my god it's the middle of the night like it's it's 4 a.m it's been going on all night are they still talking and it gets down to the wee hours and you see rachel she's sitting there defeated in the same way that we saw Diane in that earlier episode, right? Just like, I don't have any more. And he's like, okay. And this is where he's like, let's get some Chinese food. Let, you know, let's whatever. And she's like, no, I think it's, it's really time for you to go. They're in the quiet late hours and he's now down to begging, right? He's like, it can't be like this. It can't, it can't be like this. And she's like, I don't like I can't I I just I can't stop picturing it it hurts too much this I just don't see a way forward yeah and that's the frustrating part for me as an adult now because yeah I think the conversation I'd like to see is the like what should our relationship look like and what you know how do your expectations line up with the realities of my new job and all that and instead what we get is like I'm really really sorry I had sex with that girl and her going yeah but I'm still really really mad at you because it's really really gross to think of you screwing her and it's just like you said, it just all boils down to this thing. And yeah, maybe for the internalized misogyny that you're talking about, they're not addressing, in my opinion, the real issue. No, they absolutely aren't addressing the real issue for whatever reason, whether it's societal or the writers or whatever it is. 
that mm-hmm. or maybe they're teeing it up to be a punchline forever, you know, and like, <laughs> well, it's also just an easier thing to wrap your head around. You know, it's why most movies are about let's get the magic fossil instead of like a super in-depth, you know, emotional analysis. It's just an easier thing to grab onto. Exactly. And they'd have to do like in order for this relationship to go forward based on those actual issues that they had leading up to this fight and everything, Ross would have to change. And there's no indication that he's going to. And by the way, for the rest of the series, he doesn't. And spoiler alert, when they get together in the very last episode and she gets off the plane and gives up her dream job in Paris for him, it just speaks to how little he's grown and how much she's worn down over the years that she actually does do the thing that he's always wanted, which is just stay home and be a damn mom. Yeah, that is unfortunate, but uh, just to switch gears a little bit, it is inspired, like you said, the way the other cast members are used in this, that it's not just the B story, let's give them something funny to do to, to balance it out. When they get trapped in that bedroom, it just it's it's this perfect device for... A, undercutting the seriousness with the humor, and B, yeah, giving you this sort of Greek chorus to react to the things that they're saying uh, and, you know, saying all that stuff. Oh, it's Ross and Rachel. This can't really be happening. And my favorite point is when, you know, they're at a super serious moment in the Ross and Rachel conversation, and then it's spilling over into the rest of the cast and they're going, you know, they're talking about Ross and Rachel as though they're their parents. And they're going like, what if they don't work this out? And then Joey goes, do you think I need a new walk? Yeah. <laughs> it's just such a perfect, like, undercutting. And then they eventually bring that back later. Like like I said, the, the scenario bugs me the way it's so sort of calculated so that it, it drives them into this breakup, you know, like it's almost been preordained. But it's, I don't know, I feel like we've talked it to death well, lots what they do, they do one thing really well with this, right? I mean, they do many things really well. But this breakup is, like a lot of breakups, sad for both people. And I think that's really beautiful, the way they show that. Like, there is there is this devastation and this resignation in the end of this relationship, which this is an experience, not necessarily the same, you know, situations leading up to it, but this is how I've experienced breakups. It's that you just, you get to a point where it doesn't matter how much you love a person that like, it's just, it's all the things are too much and you just can't. And so somebody has to be strong enough to say goodbye and in this case, it's Rachel. And and it is heartbreaking. I mean, you see it on both their faces. It's so sad. And they do such a good job. Yeah. No, like we said at the start, it's, it's really sort of emotionally exhausting. You feel like you've been through the grinder after all the fighting and everything. And yeah, that's a byproduct of this contrivance. They've, they've managed it so that we have sympathy for both characters and uh, we're really sort of on both of their sides. We're on the side of their relationship. That's what made yeah. this show so iconic is that we want them to get together. But uh, not today. Not so. today. So before we move off of this, though, I just want to mention one little thing. I have a pet peeve about TV shows. 
it drives me crazy that everyone wears shoes in their house mm. all the time, particularly people who live in New York City. Nobody who lives and walks around New York City wears outside shoes in their house. It's gross. So it was so refreshing because the friends who were in the bedroom had shoes off. Phoebe's toes and Monica's toes were on display for everyone to see for most of the shots when we got them in the bedroom. And it felt so homey and right. And I loved it. That's funny. I never knew. I never noticed that. You know, that's one of those things like nobody says bye at the end of a phone call or, you know, the picking up the cup of soda that obviously doesn't have any weight to it. But yeah, now I'll be on the lookout for indoor shoes. All right. Moving on to The Office. Season three, episode eight, The Merger. Yeah. So The Office is always a little bit of an outlier. You know, we've talked about how uh, we're in the 21st century now. So the original Office created by Ricky Gervais and the American one by Greg Daniels is a subversion, right? This whole thing is sort of playing with the sitcom tropes and trying to be different and just having a different sense of humor and the whole notion of the show being a documentary instead of a multi-camera sitcom. Everything about this is just a little bit different and having sort of stood on the shoulders of sitcoms past. So with Jim and Pam, a lot of the stuff happens off camera um, because we only get to see what happens at the office and the way these stories are set up are a little different than something we would see in Friends. But anyway, Jim and Pam left off with the kiss after casino night. But unlike our other couples, they didn't get together. Right. They had the big reveal of Jim's feelings and Pam revealing to her mom, sort of, that she might have feelings, but then not telling Jim that. And so what has happened in the intervening time is... They had another conversation after casino night about, hey, is, you know, are we going to try to, you know, do this? And Pam was not willing to break off her relationship with Roy. And Jim decided to take the job in Stanford. So he has transferred to another branch. Well, in the intervening time, now Pam has ended her engagement with Roy and she and Jim have kind of lost touch. Yeah. Well, the Stamford branch is closing and the people who have been working there got to decide whether or not they would take a severance or move to Scranton. And Jim has gone back and forth about it because it's been a little uncomfortable and is currently dating one of his co-workers from Stamford, Karen. Yeah, this is episode eight of season three. So as all the Office fans remember, the first third of season three was splitting its time between Scranton and Stamford. And you had this whole sort of bizarro office where you got to meet Andy Bernard, played by Ed Helms, and Karen Filippelli, played by Rashida Jones, and a handful of other characters. There was Josh, the boss, who was, you know, sort of like the, the cooler, more self-aware version of Michael. And so now it's like we're kind of 
whittling down a lot of those other people. We'll get some of the the Stanford people leaving in this episode, and we get like the like the title of the episode says the merger. So we're gonna sort of come out of this episode, you know, when all the smoke clears with a couple new, you know, semi-permanent members to the cast and a whole new sort of configuration. Right. So we get Rashida Jones and Ed Helms, Andy Bernard, right, who they are going to stay on for quite some time at the Scranton branch. And Jim has decided to come back. Now, so with all of our episodes that we're watching today for this show, all of our episodes are nearly a year a whole season away since the last episode that we saw, except for The Office. This is only about eight or nine episodes since the last episode we watched. Mm. It is a new season because, like we were saying, a lot of our episodes in the last act that we did were season finales. But the episode that is a full year away from the last episode we watched is also another big turning point in the Pam and Jim saga. So in this episode, we see Pam and Jim coming back together, working together for the first time since that awkward, you know, it wasn't going to happen kind of a moment where Jim was like, I can't continue to stay here and be friends with you. It hurts too much. And now... We're in this place of Pam's looking very much forward to it throughout this whole episode. She's gesticulating with her left hand to show that the ring is not there anymore. They have not kept in touch. Yeah. They still call each other a good friend and and, and all, but they have not kept in touch. Yeah. So the episode, though, that is a, a whole year, a whole season from the last one is the episode known as The Job. And that's the episode where Jim asked Pam out for the first time. Right. But that's still off in the future. That's still off in the future. Yeah. We get uh, these talking heads early in the episode. The whole office is abuzz with this merger, right? So there's all these stories. We don't need to get into the little ones, but everyone's excited um, or at least has some opinion about these, these new people that are coming over from Stanford. And so in these talking heads, Pam is... Being weird with with us, the viewer, right, with the camera crew, like she's going, like, oh, I'm, I'm excited because, well, well, I'm I'm meeting new people who wouldn't be excited, and and oh, 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 you you mean my friend who's coming over? Of course, I'm excited to see my friend. Why wouldn't I be? You know, like she has this weird energy that it's like. In reality, she she's just like overjoyed to see Jim, I think. And she's trying to convince us and herself that that's perfectly normal because they are work friends. Exactly. So everyone's excited on both sides. I mean, even the Stanford people are a little bit like, oh, oh, what's it going to be like? You know, kind of. Well, a thing. we get the great uh, the Andy Bernard talking head where he's explaining his strategy for ingratiating Michael, the new boss. And he, he like has all these bullet points personality mirroring and endless handshakes are like among his bullet points for how he, you know, how he scores points. Yes, he's never going to be the one to break off a handshake. That's how he's going to make sure that the other people his that are his like equals know that he's above them. And he's going to do the personality mirroring with 
Michael so that oh, yeah. things will be. And that that first scene when he comes in, uh, when Ed Helms comes in and has that very first conversation with Michael Scott and Pam is just sitting at her desk watching it happen. Her face, like the delight in her face is the delight in all of our faces. Yeah, it's the nifty gifties. And Ed Helms is delighted by the nifty gifties, or at least he pretends to be because he's this chameleon sycophant that just molds himself into whatever he thinks the boss wants. And of course, we get some of the classic Michael cringe comedy when he meets Rashida Jones's character, Karen. You know, we talk before about how they did a good job, I think, of they phased out the cringe comedy and made the American office much more sort of human and nice, frankly, than the British one. But they they always would remind you of it here and there. And so Michael coming in and immediately telling Karen, uh, you look very exotic. Was your dad a GI? Right. (laughs) And, and, (laughs) And she's just kind of like, uh... And then it moves on. But we also get a fantastic moment in time of a Lazy Sunday parody. The viral video, like one of the very first viral videos from SNL. It was a music video with Andy Samberg and, oh, what's his name? He plays Chris Parnell. Thank you. Chris Parnell is like, Dr. Spaceman, Dr. Spachemin. So Chris Parnell, and it was like this rap video, and they this was before Lonely Island would would do music videos on SNL, and they, you would have like an SNL digital short. Yeah. That all came out of the Lazy Sunday video that just blew up. And I mean, I just remember, like, I had probably been to YouTube twice in my life. And people were like, you have to go to YouTube and watch this lazy Sunday like that. It just was enormous. Yeah, it's very funny. I always remember the part where uh, Michael goes, there's plenty of room in the parking lot. And then Dwight goes, but the little cars go in the compact spot. And it has him like kneeling next to the cars. It was so funny. Jay is literally singing along with this video. It was so great. Well, and another one of those moments is uh, Andy and Dwight meeting for the first time, which is also a historic thing. And this is definitely something that rings true. I feel like if you've, you know, if you have any experience in the corporate world where they have, they both have these meaningless titles where one of them is the assistant regional manager and one of them is director of regional sales or something. And so like they're constantly bickering about which one of them is higher up in the org chart, but none of it matters. So yeah, we get all of that. There's a point after the video where Dwight comes back to his desk or something and Andy is like casually leaning up against a filing cabinet and like tossing a tennis ball or something to himself. He's tossing the rubber band ball that sits on Dwight's desk. He's kind of sitting on Dwight's desk and is like, do you have anything to report? Just to try to, like, get one over on Dwight. Right, because, yeah, they're fighting about who reports to whom. Uh, So, yeah, that is a great little sort of, like, battle of the nitwits. But meanwhile, 
there is a palpable awkwardness between Jim and Pam, right? right? We get these scenes of them coming together first at the reception desk. The reception desk scene, you know, when they're first reacquainted is fine. You get these little hints of like, oh, hmm, it's, uh, it's maybe a little weird. And then this second scene at the vending machine is like super weird. Right. And that second scene happens after the Lazy Sunday lazy Scranton video where Pam notices that Karen and Jim are communicating non-verbally. Yeah, Karen Karen is gum. Well, Karen is getting a piece of gum out of her bag behind Jim. And like simultaneously, they just turn to each other and she hands him gum and like it's wordless. And you see Pam notice it and kind of be like, whoa because that sort of like wordless we're on the same page thing is their thing and so she that's when she kind of gets it in her mind that she's going to try and like have a one-on-one conversation with jim and so later in the episode they're in the break room and she asks him out she says you want to go catch up and have a coffee after work or something and that's his moment to tell her that he's seeing someone because that's what that's the reason for the awkwardness is that he knows you know they both know where they left things but something has changed He may have heard that she broke off her engagement just through, like, the gossip rumor mill, but he definitely hasn't, she definitely hasn't heard that he's dating Karen, and he needs to tell her. So he's about to tell her in the break room in this weird, awkward lull in the conversation when Michael comes in and is like, oh, didn't want to erupt anything, and makes it out like there's a thing there. To which then Jim has to be like, no, there's no thing. You weren't interrupting anything. No. And then it's even more awkward. Yeah. They just literally don't know what to do with themselves. And you feel for Jim in the sense of like, it's just one of those things, you know, he can't walk in the door and immediately be like, hi, nice to see you. I have a girlfriend now, just so you know, right? Right. But it is this information that does hang over everything. And so, yeah, there is this, he's in this situation where he can't have the same sense of joy to see her as he would if things were different. Like, it's just the same way it's not appropriate to be the subject of a top 20 bachelor's article. Like, it's just not (laughs) appropriate, especially if you work with your girlfriend, to show up and just have that sense of, like, delight in your, your friend, the receptionist. And so he is trapped in this uncanny valley of, like, he has nothing to hide and he's not doing anything wrong, and yet he can't match her energy. Right. And they teach us up for this reunion being more celebratory in terms of the ability to prank and and yeah. you know goof off again because before the Stamford branch people come in it's like the day before they're packing up their office and Scranton is preparing for the next day and we see Pam messing with Dwight 
Yeah. Dwight has this, you know, Toby's apparently run a marathon or something over the weekend and he did a good job. And Dwight's like, I'm super fast. A seven minute mile isn't fast. I'm fast. And so Pam grabs like a thermometer and, you know, a digital thermometer and goes outside and is like, well, I'll time you. You have to run around the building three times. And so Dwight's going and he comes around the first lap and she's like, not even close, Dwight. You better pick it up if you're going to be Toby's pace. And she's like, oh, you know, says to the camera, should I feel bad about doing it? No, I guess not. I'm going to go back in and do some more work and like goes inside and just leaves him out there running around the building. So what we see as the audience is that she hasn't given up the shenanigans and the shenanigans didn't just exist because Jim was there to start them. It was a mutual thing. Like she enjoys the shenanigans and has kept them up without Jim. And now she's, it's it's a lonely game though, doing it by yourself. Right. So she's looking forward to her friend coming back for those shenanigans. And then he is like not immediately involved in the shenanigans. They do share a glance like during, right before the Lazy Sunday, Lazy Scranton video happens. He's like, this seems like it's going to be good. And she's like, oh, it's epic. And then we get a cutaway to him saying on my first day, Michael did a Blair Witch Scranton. Yeah, the Scranton Witch Project. Right. Yeah, where he's like, it it co- it cuts to him like in that famous shot with the with the the snotty nose from you know Heather Donahue and the Blair Witch Project, and he's going, I'm so scared when people don't label their personal food in the refrigerator. <laughs> like that's his whole bit. But it just you know it talks about how he like always likes to use whatever moment in time it yeah. is to do some to do some fun thing with an orientation video. So Jim is not going full throttle into the shenanigans again, but what we're going to get in subsequent episodes. So there's a lot of awkwardness in this episode and a lot of things that are unsaid that need to be said that will get said in the episode. But later on, so after this episode, Pam being very disappointed that Jim is dating Karen Decide she's going to give in to Roy, who has been trying to win her back. And they start dating again. And then she, Pam and Karen, kind of become friends. And so then it becomes this whole, like, we're going to double date. We're going to hang out together. It's going to be great. And Jim's like, okay, I can do shenanigans again. And so then they start having a good time together, which Karen doesn't really like. And then we've got some big things that happen. Yeah. But in terms of the here and now, you you get Pam's disappointment in her talking head where she's kind of like, yeah, I guess it's, I don't know, it's a little bit of a weird energy, but uh, what can you do? And then it kind of gets put on hold for, you know, some fun conference room stuff where we get the whole, the, the merger, right? The new people trying to become acclimated and Michael, you know, having like he always does these multiple meetings because the last one wasn't good enough. So back into the conference room, this one's going to be good. And we have, I think this is a pretty iconic part. The uh, the night at the Roxbury thing, where <laughs> Michael has this whole skit he's prepared, but his his little tape deck doesn't work. So Andy's acapella skills are going to come to the rescue, right? He's yes. going to start doing the bam 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 bam. What is love? And then they're all going to start dancing, the two of them. And then Tony, the fat guy, you know, this poor, uh, very large gentleman that is one of the new the new people from Stanford is just literally stuck in the crossfire while the two of them are like grinding up on him doing the Roxbury bit. Yes, exactly. And 
and much to Dwight's chagrin, because now Andy has yet again gotten, you know, Michael what he well, wanted. For Dwight, this is like watching the copy girl sleep with your boyfriend. You oh, know, he's, he's so filled upset. filled with jealousy. He's yeah. so mad. Yeah, and then there's the whole thing with he wants them to get on the tables, and again, Michael, you know, insists that this big dude, Tony, joins all these other new recruits on top of the table. He's he's shoving him up, him and Dwight, and there's a point where he yells, I'm writing your crack, as Michael is trying to get this guy, you know, like hoist him onto the table. It's all, you know, the usual office sort of cringe comedy slapstick nonsense. Michael pulls the false flag operation, slashes their tires and makes them think it's Vance Refrigeration that did it. All kind of beside the point for our purposes. But, you know, the office is involved in all kinds of shenanigans with the merger. Uh, Jim and Pam don't really have much to say to each other until the end when Jim is on the phone in his car with Karen and they're making plans to hang out that night. And he's like, Oh, let me, let me call you back or I'll see you later. Cause he sees Pam coming. Right. Pam's coming out and, and um, going to her car and he's like, Hey, Oh, I thought you left. And she was like, no, I was just wrapping up some stuff. And you know, she's sort of vague about it. And he's like, Hey, I, I need to tell you that, you know, I'm, I'm seeing someone. Does he say he's dating Karen? No, he says, I'm seeing someone and he doesn't he doesn't mention Karen. Pam reacts like very casually with casually in quotes. Oh yeah, like, she's doing super the thing. Weird. It's it just mirrors what she did in the last episode, which is like we're friends. It's okay. We're friends. We're friends. Yeah. We're friends. Yeah, no, exactly. She says, "Do whatever you want." You know, she has one of those like it, it's almost like her wording is sort of like overcompensating and she's going like, "I don't care. What, what do I care? Do whatever you want." So, yeah. Oh, it, that's so great for you. That's great. You know, we're friends. We're always going to be friends. She says friends at least 5 times in like the 3 sentences she speaks. Yeah. And so, this is why I would argue that even though this obviously doesn't follow the same story beats as the other ones. To me, emotionally, this is still keeping pace in its own weird way. Yeah, uh, this is the part, I think, in this series where it feels like it's there's no return. Like, they're not going to get together. They're, this is their their breakup, for lack of a better word, because they were never together. Yeah, that's why I said Empire Strikes Back. Like, this feels like a downbeat. Like, they had a chance, and it looked like something might happen. And in the other shows, that takes the form of they got together and dated for a year. And in this show, that takes the form of they just they just had a moment, and it didn't and it didn't do anything except in our imaginations. Right, but it. it looked like there was some sort of a promising future. And now, yeah, it's like they're at the lowest that we've seen them. They have less chemistry. You know, the the flame is as close to being extinguished as it ever has been. Absolutely. And one of the things, you know, there's, again, we've talked about it before. I think Jim gets some guff now as a character for being 
you know, more like a Ross than than I think we see him as. And every time, you know, I've, I've absolutely been open to that criticism and I've heard what people have said about that and, you know, read tons of articles about Jim being problematic in all these ways and not being as supportive of Pam as he could and da da da, da. And every time I go back to the episodes and really watch the way the characters act and interact with each other, it doesn't bear out. No, I'm sure there's good points made in a lot of those pieces, but that also to me seems like a little bit of contrarianism, a little bit of like, well, because we all worshipped this show and these characters, of course you want to have the hot take that what if they're a little problematic. But the reality is, I think that Greg Daniels and Mike Schur and... Novak and Mindy Kaling and all the people writing this just have such a good head on their shoulders at this point. And of course, the performances with Krasinski and and Jenna Fisher, there's just too much intelligence and emotional intelligence running abound throughout this, whereas Friends is still is still drunk on that 90s weirdness and all the the gender roles and the unconscious racial bias and all the bullshit that we had back then i feel like the office i'm not saying it's perfect but i think we're just a little bit like out of the muck and like thinking a little more clearly and so yeah i think you can absolutely make observations and that he doesn't do everything right but at the end of the day i feel like they're they're a pretty solid couple and their behavior checks out yeah, I think nine times out of 10, it's it's Pam who is the one that's lacking the emotional intelligence. It's Pam who's hiding feelings and pretending things aren't what they are and lying to herself and deceiving others in order to deceive herself. I think those are like Pam's the one that needs to grow up a little bit in certain ways. And that's what we've seen so far. Don't know if that's going to be true going forward. But I think that's kind of where we are in the Jim and Pam of it. So, yeah, it ends, like we said, on a downbeat, on a sense of like, uh, gee, I don't know what's going to happen here. The thing of the Pam and Jim's sort of trajectory being so different means that there's a lot of really wonderful Pam and Jim episodes or moments in episodes because so much of The Office is just a quick, like, like we said, the next big Pam and Jim moment is Pam makes a big speech. Yes. And then the next thing that happens after that is Jim gives up a job and sticks his head in on a uh, a talking head of Pam's and says, hey, you want to go grab a coffee sometime tonight after work? Great. Yeah. And that's it. And like, and but then- that's the next. I think that's the next act. Yeah. That's act five, I think, is them uh, Starting finally to date dating. Or, see, and I would think that act five for them would be like that crazy, amazing wedding episode at Niagara Falls. That's like, I think that's the epilogue or that's like act 5b or something (laughs) but if we're if it's boiling down to a will they or won't they i think that's you know as as epic it is the next will they if this is their breakup that is the if this is the won't they that's the will and the wedding as iconic as it is there is no 
mystery at that point. Their story about whether or not they're going to get together is over. No, that's at that true. point, and it's been over for a while. At that point, it, that's it's just an episode about them getting married. Yeah. So you know, regardless of what we get into in our final act, I feel like we can end on this sort of beat that they're they're in a bad place and they don't know where it's going to go from here and you know for the time being we're stuck with karen as the girlfriend and who knows what will happen next. there you go moving on to new girl season three episode 20 mars landing and new girl as everybody knows is one of my our very favorite shows ever one of the most iconic lines comes from New Girl. No notes. Yeah. Right? Well, guess what? New Girl writers, Elizabeth Merriweather, I have notes. Right. What the hell? Okay. Do you want to get into what your grievances yes. are? First of all, we know it's a breakup because that's what this act is, right? This is apropos of nothing. There is no reason for them to break up. There have been no signs all the way along. The last time we left them, Jess was dating Sam and they had this hot and heavy kiss. Well, so what we have had in the interim is a few episodes later, she kind of, Jess sort of realizes that she needs to break up with Sam. And then there's another, a few little more hemming and hawing about whether or not that turns into a relationship with Nick. But then she says, you know what? No, we need to give it a go. And they do. And they give it a go. And they are happy. They are happy, unhappy, unhappy. They're not having any problems, a la Sam and Diane and Ross and Rachel. They are not in a situation like Pam and Jim where they just can't get their timing right. Their timing is right. They are best friends. There is nothing wrong. They're smooth sailing. The episode opens with the group of friends having a blast mid True American. We had an epic True American game in the last episode we watched, and this one starts right in it. And Coach is back. Woohoo! Yay, Coach! All things tee it up to be this awesome episode. And it is in every way, except this breakup is stupid and contrived. And the only reason it's in here at all, the only reason these two characters break up is because the writers didn't have anything else to say about them, wanted to do something different, and wanted a reason to get them back together at the very end of the series. I have notes New girl. Yeah, this was something I struggled with too. I remember just watching the show the first time around. Uh, and this isn't even the episode I'm thinking of. There was one in particular that I remember just really kind of being frustrated with Nick's character where he's insisting like, nah, this isn't going to work, Jess. I'm no good for you. You don't understand. I just can't do anything right. And he's just, he's, he's like, has this insistence about like, oh, this, this, we just can't do it. And yeah, I remember thinking like they're, they're not doing a great job of making me understand why, you know, and part of it is to New Girl's credit, like we always say, it is sort of like a post-tropes show where these characters aren't as simple as he's the smarmy one and he's the stupid one and he's the sarcastic one. The characters are more complex and interesting. And so I like 
that they don't just latch onto something like friends did of, well, he slept with somebody. And so that is a, a landmine that destroyed everything. But it is, I, I agree to an extent that it, it sort of seems like it comes out of left field. Let's walk through the scenario a little bit. This begins after the true American game. We get the next morning. This is something that we don't ever get to experience because I don't drink anymore, uh, that they wake up hungover together, Nick and Jess. Yes. And that's kind of a fun, sort of acute scene, you know, the two of them suffering through that together. Yes. And the whole cast is all hungover, right? But so, yeah, Nick and Jess, they're laying in bed and they're like, you know, pulling different they're still in their clothes from last night. They're pulling random like pieces of clothing and sheets and blankets over their heads because the light is coming through the window and they, oh, everything's so loud. And Jess wants some water, but it's on Nick's side of the bed. So he tries to grab it. And if anybody has done this, you know exactly what this life is. Right. He grabs the water, but he misses and it falls over. And then he's like, the water's on the floor. And so it's like dripping all over the floor. And he just lets it be there because he's like, I can't get up. I'm too hungover. Um, And then he like takes his finger that got a little water on it and puts it over Jess's mouth like a hamster um, water bottle thing, like on a hamster cage. And she's like licking at his the little tips of his fingers, trying to get a little a little drop of water of his little mere fingers. Yeah. And then the phone rings and they're both like, ah, and it's your buddy, June Diane Raphael, right? Yeah. It's Jess's gynecologist friend played by June Diane Raphael. And she's like, don't you remember uh, you're coming to my one-year-old son's birthday party today? And Jess is like, we have to go to a one-year-old's birthday party. Get up. And that's what sets all of this in motion. They, you know, it's established kind of right there that Jess is overly emotional when she's hungover and they're both trying to get dressed and she's got on like a skirt and a bathing suit bra top. Yeah. And Nick picks up a pajama shirt and throws it at her. So she like buttons two buttons on the pajama shirt. And he's like, you did a good job there. That's a good look. I like that. Here, take this. And she, and she's looking at him and he's similarly like discombobulated. He's got his, the sleeve of his button up shirt is buttoned into his button up shirt. So he can't like get, pull it away. And so anyway, so Jess is like, wait, before we go, we have to get the present. Like, cause she had it in the house and Nick goes and grabs it. And she's like, we have to put that together. Yeah. This becomes, I think, a pretty standard relationshipy kind of thing. She's like, you were supposed to, you were supposed to assemble this. You know, it's some kind of big complicated toy. This is something I had to do on Christmas morning every year when my nephew was between the ages of like two and nine. You know, some complicated toy. And she's like, well, you said you were going to assemble this before the party. And he's like, well, it's before the party. Uh, he has a funny line where he says, I'm not Santa Claus, Jess. I don't just assemble toys weeks in advance. But <laughs> you can see that sort of classic thing of like, why didn't you do this thing that I asked you to do? Why aren't you taking responsibility? And his thing of like, why are you, you know, taking this too 
seriously. It doesn't have to be that big of a deal. This is who I am. I'm just going to do things at the last minute. You need to be okay with that. There's also a part he says, it's not my business what they do with this toy. Maybe they want to assemble it themselves. Maybe they want to return it. That's not my business. And he just keeps (laughs) emphasizing that word business. Very funny Jake Johnson stuff Yes. So now this is where I have to say, as much as I have notes because it comes out of nowhere and it, you know, it's just, it's not, it doesn't make any sense for them to be breaking up. Why, why, why? The actual, like, fight or the actual, like, seed of the reason they start to have this conflict that is coming out of nowhere is a real relationship thing. Like, it is something like you didn't put the toy together and that means you never plan for the future and you don't listen to me. And I'm worried now, what are our kids going to be like? And what are your plans for the future? And we don't see eye to eye. And it just gets bigger and bigger in the same way that like very normal relationship fights yeah. do. Like you didn't pull up the sheets and that means you don't love me. Right. And so, uh, yeah, this starts transitioning into Jess's plans for the future. And this is another sort of classic Jessica Day character thing is like, oh, no, yeah, sure, I think about the future a little bit. I don't have, you know, any sort of like really specific idea. I think we'll live in a town by a lake and it'll have people there that are, you know, welcoming, but not too welcoming. And we'll have these kids that'll be so smart and creative that they'll name themselves. And, you know, she starts explaining this, of course, very detailed and eccentric vision she has for the future. And like you said, she starts to take issue with the fact that Nick obviously doesn't think about this stuff, doesn't have the same kind of plans for the future. And regardless of anything else that happens, the one thing that Nick is absolutely right about is when he says, you can't talk about serious stuff when you're hungover. Yes. It's a terrible idea. This is a terrible idea. He tries to like hit abort on the conversation multiple times, but she's so emotional and she's so earnest and he loves her so much that he just keeps getting sucked back in and she's like it's fine that you don't plan for the future in the same way that I do but what do you think about you have to have had some daydream some thought at some point and he's like well yeah sure I dream about being a long-haul trucker wouldn't that be cool or I mean and I want to go live on Mars landing because, I mean, you're crazy if you don't think we're going to be living on Mars in 25 years. And and her face, like her trying to understand how his daydreams and plans for the future are so just not anything he would actually ever do Yeah, is so baffling to her that she's like, she's just like, that's not even real. And he's like, who says it can't be real? I can have dreams too, you know? Yeah, which is a little odd when you think about, and look, granted, people are odd in this way and have all different sides to them. But Jessica's character, right? Let's not forget she's adorkable, right? Oh, the whole, don't even say it. The whole premise of this show is she's so whimsical and silly and eccentric. And so, in a sense, 
you could argue it's a little out of character that she has all of these grounded sort of specific ideas and he's basically being silly and she's not up for it. You know? Well, but I don't think it's out of character because she is a planner, right? Like she is an over planner, over organizer, over complicating things. And that's the way that she's whimsical. She's not whimsical like our uh, copy girl from the sure. Friends episode, right? Yeah. That like, And so Nick's whole point is, no, I don't really think about practical plans for the future because you know what he says God laughs at God laughs plans. exactly he basically says that kind of saying but he's like the one thing that's sure is that nothing is going to happen the way you think it's going to happen so you can you know have some ideas and that's great but life is going to get in the way and I'm not trying to get so like bogged down in my visions of what might be that I can't be open to the possibilities that are coming along right which of course is True, but also, in his case, is just a rationale for being rudderless and unambitious, because exactly. as we know, you know, he's he's a bartender, which is, is fine in itself, but he's just generally a dude with no direction in life. One other funny thing about his plans for the future is uh, he goes, I need to tell you something important, Jess. My first child has to be named <laughs> Reginald Val Johnson. I lost a bet. It's non-negotiable. Right? And so from and she's then like, on, what is the bet? <laughs> yeah. And so from then on, whenever he's referring to their theoretical child, he's calling him Reginald. And so does Jess. <laughs> Jess, like this is this is one of the ways that like as this fight is unfurling, you're like, oh, it's funny, it's a fight, but they're not really going to break up. Yeah. Because she buys in. She's like Reginald. You know, Reginald will need to have he'll need to be out by the trees and doing the you know artistic things and whatever and so she's calling him reginald too and she's totally bought in like you're right you you know you lost the bet to schmidt the alternative it was going to be like sex beast or something so you know the fact that he got it talked down to reginald val johnson is great and so what what strikes me about this in parallel with sam and diane right is that again we have kind of a you know, not ambitious, happy in his sort of ways, not planning for the well, future. Nick is not on any 20 most eligible bachelors of the city articles, but sure, point well taken. Right. We've got that guy, the bartender guy, and you've got the girl who's into education, whether it be, you know, K-12 education or higher education in the case of Diane. So, and the argument is basically the same that, I want to make plans and think about commitment and plan with you, together with you, about our future. And you want to think about the here and now and, you know, get little digs in. Yeah, and it's all just about do nothing. The, just have fun and not exactly have a good anything. time and have it be um, instant gratification, yeah. more of a thing. Right. So that's kind of at the heart. But the difference between the huge, massive difference between the two couples is that Sam and Diane don't want the other person to be themselves. They are trying to change the other person into the person they want them to be, specifically Diane changing Sam. Nick says to Jess that he feels like she's trying to change him and wants him to be something that he's not. But 
that's not not like neither of them think that's actually the case. He knows Nick knows and they say it in this episode. I want you to be who you are and I like you for who you are. This is why you're my best friend. And then Nick says to Jess, I want you to be who you are and I want you to be happy. And so it's it's this agreement on that they like who the other person is and they want that other person to be who that person is. But the sticking point is Jess wants to dream together yeah, no, more. Exactly. You're you're coming up to the same problem that you identified from the start, that the actual issue, the the insurmountable problem is is a little hard to identify. Like there it it's a little bit of like smoke and mirrors. But so this first sort of big fight that they have, right? escalates and escalates to the point of Nick saying, well, should we like break up or something? And then they do a little bit of a fake out. They cut to a commercial and then they cut back and immediately sort of deflate the moment. Like they, they laugh. both They're laugh. Like, no, yeah. Let's put They're this like, thing ah, together. Come on. Come yeah. on. Yeah. And so they kind of like back off from the brink and yeah, it's not like nothing changes in the scene, just like the mood changes and they decide like, okay, never, you know, Nick starts going like, yeah, I'll, I'll move to Portland if you want. I'll live on the lake. What do I care? You know, the, the whole scene just kind of dissipates. Well, and they say, we can do anything together. You know, we're so great. We're a wonder couple. Let's put this thing together. Yeah, let's put this thing together. So they sit down and he opens the directions and he's like, these directions are written upside down. He turns paper over. Crisis number one averted. We got this. And Jess picks up some plastic pieces and she's like, and he says, hey, the thing that looks like a meth lab gets plugged into the thing that looks looks like the end of a lightsaber and she goes oh like this and they put it together and she's like whoa we're a great team yeah we're a great team and then we get a cutaway to the b the b and c stories that have been going on that are also hilarious that i hope we get to talk about and then we come back and it has once again devolved because they keep breaking things and they've used all this duct tape and things aren't going together right. Yeah, and she's now, referring to it as like, I put the swastika into the guillotine. How come that didn't work? And he's like, why is this a child's toy? This is where it, it starts to really get murky, mm -hmm. where it's just kind of like, what is the problem here again? Like, Other than the fact that they're tired and hungover and cranky. Yeah, which really... Again, like it makes you just want to slap some sense in, into him and go like, guys, just, you know, do what Ross thought Rachel meant in the first place. Take a break right. from this conversation. Do the thing that Marshall and Lily do. They say time out or yeah. pause or whatever they say. They say pause and they go and they have, you know, a life and do what they need to do and hang out together and don't argue. Yeah. Jess is crying. She's upset. She's like... She's like, I, I don't want to fight. Like the one thing that I guess we don't get, you know, we've watched this whole series now multiple times in terms of the episodes leading up to this, you know, when she says, I don't want to fight all the time, I guess that tells me so like, we're supposed to understand that they fight a lot. Like, that's a problem. But that's but, a misnomer because it's not yeah. true, you know? 
Yeah, they they say that they miss each other as friends. It's right. you know that's that's the thing. It's like you know maybe we were just better off as friends. We didn't fight as much, and we can enjoy each other's personalities. It was literally three or four episodes earlier where they were back in Chicago because Nick's somebody dad maybe died. You know, somebody really Nick was really close to died, and they went back to Chicago. And that was kind of when they said, no, we're really going to date for real. And then it was just a few episodes earlier where the all, the episode called All In, where they end up going to Mexico and like Nick freaks out and is like, I can't commit or whatever. And then they it's because he's just scared to say I love you and they say I love you. So like they should be riding high from the fact that they love each other. Yeah. And like we said, this is all happening when they're hungover. Like your brain yeah. doesn't work the same way. So so let's finish out the story. They break up then yeah. and there. Well, it creates this whole weird tension, like you're saying, right? So they now we're back again. So it's been one of these days, and I'm sure you've had fights like this, where it's it's one of these things where like you think you're through the fight and you kind of laugh it off and you shake it off, but it's really not done because the minute there's something else trivial that gets hard everything comes back up and then you're still fighting later on in the day. Like it's just this rolling argument that won't go away and it's plaguing you. And that's what happened. So we get back again to this like moment where they, they just realize that they're at this impasse an impasse that doesn't make any sense, but they can't see a way around it. And it is, it's about like not being able to dream together and plan in the way, you know, the one wants to and the other doesn't want to. And that's just too scary that there's this thing that might force them apart one day. And they're too scared to deal with the fact that that might happen because they care so much about each other. They're like, well, let's just go back to being friends, I guess. Yeah. They end with a salute a la Saving Private Ryan. Nick does this funny little thing like, oh, well, they did it in Saving Private Ryan, so I want to do it. And yeah, I guess it's this weird dichotomy where I think we agree the overall quality level of the show is still really good. You know, you get those great jokes. You get the B story you're talking about with Alexandria Daddario as one of the hot neighbors that moves in and, you know, all the other characters Coach are is back. So the other thing that we didn't mention at the end, like when they're, when they're breaking up is the callback that we get to the big kiss that where we left them. Yeah. So they're in the hallway. Jess has in the intervening times moved into Nick's room because coach has come back. So coach took over Schmidt's room and Schmidt is now living in Jess's room. And so Nick and Jess were living in the same room. And so she goes to move back into her room and Schmidt's in there. She turns right back around and goes out into the hallway and grabs Nick as he's turning away in the same way he grabbed her in that very same spot right in front of her door. And she hugs him. Yeah. Like friends, you know, like we're going to be friends and it's going to be okay. And it was like this, it was this like reverse parallel of the way that they started, Uh which was really hard. Like that, that was the hardest moment for me. The other parts, because they felt so apropos of nothing, were sort of like I could get through them and they didn't feel as hard and they were more irksome um, because it felt like it was coming out of nowhere. But that moment where they did that reverse parallel and it was like, no, this is real. We're going to be friends now. I was like, 
how the hell are they going to be friends now? <laughs> yeah, but you do get the funny button of Schmidt coming out oh, of right, the room of and going, Hey, Jess, Jess, what are you so afraid of? What, it's just a naked guy doing downward dog. It's just testicles, Jess. Swinging Jess. in the breeze. Come goes, on back. But then he keeps going. He goes, are, are you telling Nick about it? I hear you guys laughing. Are you telling Nick? What does he think? It's just yeah, it's one of those you're silly... telling Nick. <laughs> but uh, yeah, you know, there's this overall really high level of quality to the humor and the acting and to everything about this show. But I guess what we're saying is, yeah, it is sort of an Achilles heel that uh, their relationship and the challenges that it presents them with, just, like, don't ring true. Yes, ab- absolutely. And and it's frustrating for that and only that, yeah. right? Like their breakup was 100% a story construct for the larger arc of the series. I think Elizabeth Merriweather and many of the writers are on record saying that they didn't plan out big long arcs, that they were going week to week coming up with story ideas. Yeah. And this idea came up too soon. Yeah. You know, and so they they didn't make it make sense, but it led us to all sorts of other things. And that's OK. And the other thing is the fact of the matter is that this show is hilarious. It like it came in the wrong place. The breakup should have happened another, you know, ha- half a season away from now where they had had time to build up to it. But the writing is still brilliant. They could have taken this episode and put it eight episodes later and they wouldn't have had to change a damn thing. I would have had no notes then. Right. The line that I freaking love Schmidt and coach have this great little like back and forth. They're so mad because they're both trying to like get with the Alexandra Daddario girl and her roommate, but her roommate has a boyfriend. And so they're arguing with each other. And Schmidt says, once again, Schmidt has found himself in a position where he is infuriated. Yeah, that is very funny. But I do have to say one of my notes would be it is when I watch this now, it is very clear to me a sign of that time. You know, this is 2014. This is a little bit past the height of the Judd Apatow, Paul Feig sort of improvisational style had really taken over movies, you know, starting with Anchorman and Bridesmaids and 40-Year-Old Virgin, movies like that. And that that had really wormed its way into all aspects of movie and TV comedy. And I see that in some of those Coach and Schmidt scenes, even though some of those lines are really funny. That part where Coach is like, all my women are exactly like me. They look exactly like me. And that like... It's very silly and it is funny, but I can tell it just reeks of that. Yeah, they turned on the camera and they said, say some funny stuff. Just keep going. And like some of it works better than others. And I think that that's a criticism. I I have a lot of stuff from this time is that they start to lean on that kind of humor a little too much instead of the writing. Well, and look, I enjoyed that whole B story. I realized that this is kind of what, you know, when Coach comes back, that's when 
um, Winston sort of goes whole hog in the I'm the awkward, weird, nerdy one yeah. direction. Which I'm on board with that. Oh, I'm he totally on board funny. with it. He's so funny with it. And so it's like they really like Winston's character, I feel like really kind of like comes into his own when Coach comes back because it was like, wait, they were literally written as the same character. Yeah. So now we got to figure out who we are in and like what are the, you know, who we are literally well and he also gets the last sort of at bat once nick and jess are paired off and schmidt and Cece. the later years of new girl get to focus on winston as the one that's got the most sort of personal drama right because he's trying he's trying to like be happy and love yeah i i mean I love New Girl so much. And I really, like, I love the writing. I love the improvisation. I love how they have fun with each other. It it always is fun when I see the actors, like, smiling for real and kind of, like, laughing along for real. And they're able to keep those bits in because they play through. It just, it's such a great show. So as hard as I am on it about it being in the wrong order, it's a really good show. So I don't know, looking back over all of these, I mean, look, like like we keep saying, this was an emotionally exhausting lineup. You know, you're just watching all of these characters that you really like being unhappy, you know? Uh, yeah, and but like putting themselves in situations and like you're saying, because they're, you know, half hour sitcoms, we're, they're going to miscommunicate and it's going to be maddening to the viewer to be like, if you would just, but you have to suspend that disbelief, you know? Yeah. In a lot of ways, Cheers is, you know, the most interesting for me to watch because it's the one that I've never seen before. So, you know, and it has this significance, obviously, in the history of all these will they or won't they storylines. And it definitely doesn't disappoint and it earns its place there. But it's also kind of heartening to see the way, like we were saying, um, you see the age and you see the toxicity that's present there in some ways that are intentional and in some other ways that just reflect the toxicity of the times. And it's nice to see that sort of drain out yeah, over, the years. over the years. Yeah, sure. as we get to The Office and New Girl. And I wonder 20 years from now if we'll watch New yeah. Girl in the office and have a totally different take or be seeing other things that we still are like unconsciously um, propagating in our own lives. Yeah. These are all amazing shows with amazing legacies and powerhouse casts. Every one of these did exactly what it needed to do. I felt tearful. I felt angry. I felt emotional and happy, not really happy, but like, you know what I mean? There were, there were the highs and lows at every beat that the writers wanted you to have. And the actors were acting it for you. It was the, I mean, I said, I have notes, but literally I have no notes, you know, across the the four in terms of the overall, they were all wonderful to watch. Yeah, no, I kind of agree. Um, So yeah, I guess, We'll leave it there and uh, see what the future brings. So much for Act 4 of The Will They, Won't They? What are we talking about next week? Next week, we are explaining it all with the witch. 
Yeah, which witch are we talking about? You know who. We're talking about Melissa Joan Hart. Everybody's favorite Clarissa, Sabrina, Melissa, and a little-known Netflix, No Good Nick. Yeah. So we're going to watch the pilot episodes of Melissa Joan Hart's Three very famous and one little-known sitcom. We will watch Clarissa Explains It All, Sabrina the Teenage Witch, Melissa and Joey, and No Good Nick. Yep, we're talking all things Melissa next week, and until then, we will consider this segment of the sitcom study concluded. Thank you for listening to The Sitcom Study. Tell us what you think or share your own TV tropes and topic ideas by sending a self-addressed stamped email to sitcomstudypodcast at gmail.com or find us on Facebook or Instagram. And if you like the show, consider leaving a rating or review on your podcast app. It helps us boost those precious Nielsen ratings. The Sitcom Study is recorded in front of a live studio dog. (laughs) 